If you have your Bibles, you can open to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be a little low-key tonight. I, I did notice that there are some visitors. If this is your first time here, please come back. I am a preacher at the core of my being. I, I love to preach, uh, but tonight I'm going to teach, and it will be a whole different atmosphere. Um, it is hard for me to contain myself when I, when I open up the Word of God. I'm a preacher, um, but I really feel like tonight we're going to, we're going to take it back a notch, down a notch, and we're going to teach. And so uh, if this is your first time here, please come back. Um, I'm a strong cup of coffee, but I, I, am, I promise you it'll be worth your while. Uh, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. Leslie told you this. Um, I've probably put it off way too long. I've had uh, pretty immobilizing pain in my uh, left arm. And uh, but I've learned to manage it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I really believe that God can heal. And so I've spent the last year and a half declaring healing over my body. But sometimes God wants us to go to the doctor and, and he can be stubborn about that. And uh, I've learned that the times that God has chosen not to heal me and I've gone to a doctor, it's because that doctor needed to hear something from me, not necessarily the other way around. And God got me there through whatever's going on. So I'm believing that tomorrow I'm going to a doctor that needs to hear. Uh, this doctor is Jewish. I've been to him before and he's fascinated that I'm a preacher and I, I've been able to speak into his life. And so I'm like, Lord, now four years later, you're taking me back to him again. There must be a purpose. And so I, I don't say that arrogantly. I, I say that because I believe that every opportunity that God puts in front of me is, opportun is opportune. There's, I'm going to make the most of every opportunity he brings to me. But, but I tell you that because I, I really should have been going to, I should have gone to the doctor probably a year and a half ago. I, I, I have learned to, I just put it off. Uh, and, and, and I've learned to manage my pain. If, if, you, if you watch me when I'm preaching, I have my arm close to my side almost all the time. And, and, and occasionally I'll, I'll throw it out when I'm preaching and I'll grab it because it's, I'm in so much pain. I've had a frozen shoulder on my right side and this doctor told me chances of getting a frozen shoulder on the left side is very, very high. And so I just assumed this was a frozen shoulder and it would deal with, it would work itself out in the end. It's not. And so I need to go to the doctor. But I tell you all of that because he has all these tests set up for me tomorrow. I'm going to have to have some x-rays. I'm going to have to have an MRI. And, 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 and I really don't want to go through all this. I would just, I would just as soon manage this pain myself um, because I don't feel pain right now. I, I've learned to deal with it in a way that I don't feel pain. But now if, if I jerk my arm in a certain way, the pain is excruciating. Or if someone squeezes me or hugs me or grabs my arm, I, I feel pain. Yesterday, my son-in-law was leaving to go back to Atlanta, and he gave me a big old bear hug on the way out the door, and I screamed because he squeezed my arm. And, and so if somebody squeezes me, I, I, I feel pain. Um, but I, I'm going to see this doctor tomorrow, and, and he will put me through an x-ray and get images of my arm. And from that x-ray, he'll be able to determine the root of my problem. And, and chances are very high I'm going to have to have surgery on this arm, or at least a procedure of treatment of some kind to make me whole again. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about what I was going to teach tonight and how I, I'm going to teach on the law of the Lord. And, and, and just like tomorrow, I have to go to this doctor, to this specialist, to this surgeon, and I'm going to have to submit to whatever examination he wants to put me through to find the root cause of my problem. Or I can choose to live oblivious to my pain and ignoring the pain that's in my life, and I can, I can learn to manage that. 
And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the law of God and, and how it works like an x-ray machine. When I, when I position myself before God in the morning in his word, that word is the examination process. He examines me, Dr. Jesus, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, my healer, the great physician. He examines me in his word. It becomes like an x-ray to, to, to look into my life and, and to put his finger on the issues in my life that need to be dealt with. But I can choose just like I've chosen with my arm. There are people sitting here tonight that, that, that really don't feel any pain. You see, my arm, if I raise it right now for you to see, you, you can see the muscles that have atrophied in my arm. It's hurting me even to raise it like this, but if I showed you that, can you see the atrophy in my arm? It looks like an old lady's arm, and it's because I can't even look at the muscle in this one. I'm strong, and yet I've lost all muscle in this arm because it's atrophied. And there are people sitting here tonight that you're not feeling any pain because you have spiritual atrophy taking place in your life. You've learned to manage. God says, I want this change in your life, or I see this. I, I've done an x-ray of your life, and I, I'm putting my surgeon finger on that thing, telling you we need to deal with that. And instead of giving the help you need to, to become whole again in his word, you've chosen to just manage the pain. And just like me right now, I finally realize I'm handicapped. I, I'm limited. I've got a grandbaby coming in a couple weeks, and I want to be able to hold that little boy. I want to be able to love on that little boy. I don't want to be handicapped. And there are some of you sitting here tonight, and you are handicapped because you, you, you're in spiritual atrophy. You're not feeling any pain when you sit under the Word of God, when you, when you read the Word of God. You're not letting Him examine you and put His finger on things in your life that need to be changed. Instead, you're learning to just micromanage things. And you don't feel anything until somebody squeezes you, a situation squeezes you, or, or somebody pushes you the wrong way, and, and then you feel the pain, but, but, but you learn very quickly how to manage it again and get it under control. Or maybe there are those that are sitting here tonight that are so spiritually dead, they don't feel any pain. You don't feel any pain over your spiritual condition. And you see, the law of God was given as a divine MRI to uncover and diagnose the problems in our life, the things that keep us spiritually handicapped. The law shows us our need of Christ, and even if we feel no pain, the x-ray of his law reveals that we are sinners in need of a Savior even if we don't feel any pain. And we need a source bigger than us to take care of it. We need Dr. Jesus in our life. You see, one of the things that, that kept me from going to the doctor for so long is when I had a frozen shoulder on this side, I went to a physical therapist and she put me through all of these, these procedures and, and exercises to get it loosened back up again. And, and so when this pain started, I thought, I can do this myself. I, I don't need to go to the doctor. I, I can handle this myself. And I started putting myself through all of these exercises and trying to, to, to fix it myself. And there's some of you here tonight and, and you feel dead inside and, and you, you, are, you know you're limited and, and you're really handicapped because of some sin in your life, some garbage in your life. But you see, you, you think you can handle it yourself. You think you can fix it yourself instead of going to Dr. Jesus and letting him do it for you. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about tonight. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, one of the, the big issues uh, when, when you teach the, the law of the Lord, 
It's really hard for me because it's interesting, the people's idea about the law. I think sometimes there's a warped theology that comes with the law of the Lord. Maybe some of you are, have heard this or you're familiar with it. People who say the Old Testament is the law. The New Testament is a book of grace. So therefore, the Old Testament is no longer valid in our lives because we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. Have you heard that theology? Have you heard that thinking? And I just want to tell you it's warped. Because we serve a God who does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has been and continues to be a God of all grace. And grace is what's happened in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. And grace is what's happening in the New Testament. I hope that as I've been teaching through the book of Exodus, you have seen grace at work. The power, the enabling power of God at work. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all about the grace of God. We see grace at work in Abraham's life. In fact, the the New Testament says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't work. He didn't obey a law. He, He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Noah, we see grace at work in Noah's life. We don't see the law at work in Noah's life. We see God telling Noah to do something and he did it, and the grace of God protected him and watched over him. We see grace all through the book of Exodus, all through the Old Testament, right up to today in our lives. Some people think God God had one idea, and it was a sacrificial keep the law idea, and and if they kept the law, uh, that he would save them, he would deliver them, and and then when that didn't work, he had to come up with a new idea, and, and then that's when he decided to send his son. Can I tell you, God never had plan A and plan B. It was always plan A. At the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it was plan A. All of what I've been teaching you the last couple months have pointed to Jesus. Everything, that scarlet thread throughout the word of God points to our need of Jesus and what he did on the cross of Calvary. It is all about grace. All about grace. This is not God's plan be in our life. And so our story is going to pick up tonight with God's people camped at the base of of Mount Sinai. That's where we left off last week. And remember that Mount Sinai was the location of Moses's burning bush experience. Uh, I want you to remember that the bush existed on its own or the fire existed on its own. It did not depend on the bush for anything. And it was a picture of the great I am, the God who was and always will be be, who doesn't need anything from us. And, and then uh, this is where that burning bush experience took place. And so God's people are once again at the base of Mount Sinai. And, and that is the place where God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. Everything he had, we have need of, he is. Do you understand that? And God said to Moses, you're going to come back here with the people. I'm going to prove to you that I am who I said I would be. And you are going to deliver them. And and you will see that you will bring them back to this place. You'll see that I'm a promise keeper. Because you're going to bring them back and we're going to worship at this place again. And so now Moses finds himself with all the the Israelites at the base of Mount, Mount Sinai once again. And God said to them, tell them to wash their clothing. Tell them to to clean themselves up because I am going to meet with them. I'm going to come down. Can I tell you, that is always the picture of God coming down to us. 
coming to meet with us. He wants to meet with us. And so God said in three days, they're going to have an encounter with me. And so tell them to wash their clothing. Tell them to keep themselves clean. Can I tell you that supernatural encounters with God comes from that kind of thinking? That kind of thinking that says, Lord, I want to clean up anything in my life that would keep me from looking more like you, from being more like you. I don't want this stuff polluting my life anymore. So this time it wasn't a bush touched by the fire of God. It was a mountain that the fire of God descended upon. And that's what the people uh, were encountering when our story picks up uh, in Exodus chapter 20. And they were there ready to hear from God and God wanted to speak to them. So chapter 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he goes on to give them the Ten Commandments. Now, it's really important. I said this last week, and I want to repeat it to you again this week. It's important that you understand that the law was given to people who were already redeemed, who were already saved. They weren't saved by keeping the law. They were saved by the grace of God, by the goodness of God. And now that they were his people, they were his treasured possession. We talked about that last week. They were a people belonging to God. They were a people possessed, if you will, by God. Just like the enemy possesses people. You can, how, how people can be demonically possessed. We talked last week about how God wants to so possess our life. He wants to so saturate our life with his being. A people belonging to God. A people possessed by God. Does anybody want to live like that besides me? You bet we do. And so these people were already redeemed by God. They were saved by God. And then the law was given. God said, you're my people. You belong to me. I pulled you out of bondage. I delivered you from bondage. I saved you from your enemies. I bore you on wings like eagles. I protected you. I took care of you. And now, he says, you are my people. You did nothing to deserve that. That was a work of grace. You and I are saved by grace and not by works so that no man can boast. It is through faith in God and what he did that you and I get saved. We can never earn it. We can never be good enough for it. We can never keep the law enough for it. You see, that is not what the law is about. You see, the law is about God saying, you belong to me. You are my people. And now I'm going to give you this law so that you can see what I look like. You can see what a people belonging to me should act like. You can see the, the reflection of who I am so that you can reflect and manifest my glory in obedience to that law. And you see, whether or not you obey the law doesn't get you saved, doesn't get you, uh, it doesn't, it's not a ladder you climb to get to heaven. The law reveals the character of God to us. And as people of God, we are called to express his character. Hey, Chrissy, to express his character. I thought you didn't feel good. How are you? I'm glad you made a point to be here. Good to see you, love. Um, the, the law is an expression of who God is. And when you and I, because I'm telling you, we are his people and we are called church. You see, this is the button that I, just pushes my buttons like I can't even tell you. People who are called to represent God, we are his people. My daughter Brooke was here this weekend. If I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times. People saying to her, Brooke, do you know how much you look like your mama? Your actions are like your mama. You look exactly like your mama. You, you you're, you're made in her image, Brooke. And I thought to myself, that is what we're called to do. 
We are called, we, we, we bear his likeness. We, 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 we are created in his image and in his likeness. We are his people. We're a people belonging to God. And people should be able to look at us and say, wow, just like they did with Brooke. Do you look like your mama? They should say, wow, do you look like your father in heaven? You are a people belonging to God. And the law was not given to save you. You were saved by grace. But now, I want, to, I want to represent. Where's Tina? Tina got me a t-shirt that says represent because she heard me say it so many times. We're called to represent. Everywhere I go, people should say that you see the disciples. They were unwise, untrained, ordinary men. But the Bible says that when people saw them, they could tell they had been with Jesus. Oh, is that not what you want more than anything in the world? For people to look at your life and say, I don't know who she is. She's a little whacked out, but I can tell she's been with Jesus. That is the cry of my heart that I look like my daddy. And you see, keeping the law for me is not about works. It's not about being good enough. I know I'm not good enough. I was saved by grace. Let me tell you, chief sinner right here, I could make Paul look like an angel. I understand who I am. I understand I was saved by grace. But the idea that he would save me and that he would deliver me and that he would make me his own, I'm just here to tell you that makes me want to look like him. And if he tells me this is the way you can look like me, I'm all for it. Uh, sign me up. Sign me up. You see, when my children, I have seven children. When my children were growing up, Dave and I had rules in our house. Baby, did we not have rules? We had rules in our house. When you have that many children, you have to have rules. (laughs) And we did not make our rules for our children based on, well, I'll give you an example. I did not say, go kick the soccer ball into the net in the backyard. Because... I didn't need to tell them to do that. They, they loved to do that. Kendall, at home right now, I don't have to say, Kendall, check your Instagram. Because she's on it all the time. I don't have to say, watch TV. I have to say things like, clean your room. Save your money. Be kind to your brother. You see, our rules in our household were based on what we knew were their struggles, their weaknesses, if you will. I didn't need to give them rules about the things they enjoyed doing or things that came easily for them. Our rules were based on their struggles, God's rules. You say, why are they those Ten Commandments? Because he's a God who knows his people. And he knows where our struggles are. And he's not going to waste his instruction on things we do well. I think if you look at those 10 commandments, they're probably the 10 areas that people struggle with the most, that Christians struggle with the most, that need encouragement from a loving father that, hey, you can do this. And not only can you do this, I've given you the Holy Spirit living within you so that you have the power to do it. The same grace that delivered you is now the grace that can empower you to walk out my commands in your life. And so I want to look at these Ten Commandments uh, tonight. And and like I said, I want to do some teaching. So Leslie, can you grab the microphone? And I'm just going to ask if you have an NIV or an NASB or a 
uh, a New King James. Uh, Try to just keep with those translations. Uh, I want I want to just read one commandment at a time. So I'm going to ask for volunteers to do that, uh, and we're going to just carefully command after command look at these in in some length. Uh, just spend a little time on each one of them. Now it's important that you can you see before we even go in this that of these ten commandments, the first four were about our relationship with God, the vertical. And then the, the last six were about our relationship with other people, the horizontal. And it's interesting to me because when you get this one right, these all fall into place. I love the story, I think it's in Matthew, where, where the disciple, or one of the Sadducees, I think, came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, can you tell me which is the greatest commandment? Let's actually turn there. It's, it's in Matthew, I don't know, 21, I think, Let's, or 22, Matthew 22. Let's flip there and just look at this scripture. Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 36 through 30, through 40, through 40, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. Now, I want you to go to notice that he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? We have 10 of them, Lord, or we have all of this massive law that they felt like they had to, to keep. So which is the, can you just help me and tell me which is the greatest? In other words, that word great there means predicated of rank. Can you just tell me what's the most important one, Lord? And Jesus replies the first, and he uses the word protos, which is where we get our word priority. Uh, he's saying the, the priority or the guiding principle, the first in rank, is that you love the Lord your God with all, let's look at it, love the Lord your God with all of your um, heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Heart, soul, and mind, with everything in you, just love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. This is, these two, plural, are the greatest commandments, singular, that you can keep. It's interesting the way Jesus uses that. In other words, he's saying, this is the most important commandment. I'm going to give you two, and it's all the same thing. If you love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, some of you are having trouble loving your spouse. You're having trouble loving your child. You're having trouble loving your neighbor. You're having trouble loving somebody you're working with at work. And I'm just going to challenge you a little bit and say, you, you know what the problem is, is you're not loving the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Because Jesus said, if you do that, this one, if you get the vertical right, the horizontal is just going to take care of itself. And so when Jesus starts, when, when Moses, when God gave Moses these 10 commandments, he started with four that were about our relationship with God because he understood if that relationship is not right, everything else is going to be off kilter. And so, Leslie, do you have the mic? Let's have somebody start in verse 1. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 3 with the first commandment. Does somebody want to volunteer uh, for that? Just raise your hand if you have one of those translations that you want to read it. Verse 3, yes, uh-huh. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. Now, what does that mean to you, that we would have no other gods before him? Somebody want to tell me what you think that means? What does it mean, Carla? Nothing before him. That means he wants to be the priority. He wants to be the number one in your life. He doesn't want there to be any rivals in your life. I'm telling you, this man could have been a god to me. He, he could have been in God's place to me. He, he loves me well. And I could have looked to him for what I need instead of look to God. But God said, Rhea, you cannot have any other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. I promise you, if, if I had made him a God before God, before my God, he would have made sure he fell. Because he does not want us to have any other gods before him. Anything you love more than him or spend more time with or give priority to is another God in your life. God wants to be supreme in our lives. He wants to be the one and only, the only one who's worthy of our love and attention. And he will make sure any other God falls because he wants to be the one and only. So the next one is uh, in verses 4 through 6. Somebody have that one? Verses 4 through 6. This is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing kind, loving kindness to thousands to, those, to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Good. So he says, you shall have no other, uh, don't make any idols, don't make any graven images. What is an idol? Does anybody know? Idol, somebody? Anything that you worship other than God. What, what, what is some of the things, what are some of the things that we worship other than God? Food. Guilty. TV, money, what children, sports, family, work. Yeah. I mean, look how easy that was for you to just give me a list of things that we worship other than God, that, that we are, uh, that, that are objects of our worship. And he goes on and he says, I am a jealous God. You see, he wants to be the object of our worship. He wants to be our confidence. He wants us to trust in him and him alone and not look to anyone else other than him for what we need. I can lean on Leslie. If I'm having a problem, I can pick up the phone and call her. And sometimes I'll hear the Lord say, come to me first. Because I make her an idol if I do that. I, I make her the thing I bow before. I look to for the answer that I need. What are you looking to other than Jesus for what you need? It's an idol in your life. No man will ever love you enough. No woman will ever love you enough. No child will ever fulfill you enough. No, no, no job will ever make you feel successful enough. You will never have enough money in the bank. Your house will be, never be big enough. I'm just telling you, there is nothing in this world that can satisfy other than Jesus. He says, I am, I'm the great I am, everything you have need of, I'll be for, I'll be for you. But it's also a picture, not just of the idols, the graven images, making graven images to worship. What else do you think that refers to? What do we do to God? 
We make him in our own image, don't we? We bring him down to a level that we can understand. We, 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 we want him to be who we want him to be instead of worshiping him for what he is. We turn him in to, to the object of our, that we want to worship. We, we mold him to be, to act the way we want him to act, to do what we want him to do. And that, that breaks that commandment as well. Number, uh, the third commandment, that's in verse seven. Does somebody want to read that one? Verse 7, come on, I need some volunteers. Verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Many of you have heard me talk about this before. It means to empty it of power. It means to make it worthless, to make it, to, 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 uh, to, to make it void of power, if you will. Do not take the name, do not make the, take the name of the Lord in vain. Do not make it void of power. And many of you have heard me say that when I pray over you in the name of Jesus, I am not making it void of power. When I say in the name of Jesus, I'm expecting something to change. You see, I understand there is power in the name of Jesus. And I, I believe with all of my heart that that's what this commandment means. I, I believe that, that sometimes when we talk about Jesus, we make it void of power. But I think the picture is so much bigger here. It's so much bigger than just making it profane, to, to use it as a cuss word or to profane his name. I believe it's even deeper than that. I believe it includes both of those things. But you know what else I think it means? The name of the Lord. Does anybody know what the name of the Lord signifies in the Bible? My Friday morning people, you should know this. What does the name of the Lord signify? His character. His character. The, the, the word name there means his fame, his reputation. You see, when we, when we speak the name of the Lord, when we confess it, when we proclaim it, when we say, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we live in a way that counteracts his character and his nature, do you think, do you understand what we're doing? We're making his name void of power. We're, we're, we're profaning his word, his name. Do you understand that? When I profess him with my mouth, but I live something that's contrary in my action, this is not meant to bring shame and condemnation. It's, it's a wake-up call to all of his church, to myself included, that I make his name void of power when I misrepresent him. When I misrepresent him. You say, Rhea, that's hard to hear. I, am, I'm just, I just want to tell you, how will we know unless somebody tells us? This is what this word means. I make it void of power. Uh, when it means to honor and to respect his name. Somebody turn to 2 Timothy 2.19 and read that to me. 2 Timothy 2.19. Somebody else turn to Romans 2, chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And let's just... Let's just talk about those two scriptures because I want you to understand the name of the Lord is on display in the way we live. Does somebody have the 2 Timothy scripture? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Diane, do you have it? I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord 
must turn away from wickedness. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. For those of you that are the Old Testament isn't for us anymore and only the New Testament is, this is New Testament. And what it's saying is that if we're going to confess the name of the Lord, we need to profess it with our life. We need to turn away from wickedness. That's not a matter of works. That's not doing something to be saved. We are already saved. We belong to him. But now I'm going to live saved. And I'm going to profess the name of the Lord, and I'm going to choose to turn away from wickedness. Romans chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Somebody have that? Karen, can we hear that? Can you just... The name of the Lord is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of the way you're acting. That's what, it, what he's saying there. And this, again, is New Testament. And it's not about condemnation. What we don't understand is this isn't about condemnation. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I am calling you up higher. I am stirring in you the word of God. I'm planting it in you. And do you understand that he says that, that we, by the way we're living, can blaspheme the, word of God, the name of God? Oh, I want to live better. And, and he's saying, you who teach, I'm preaching to myself. Do you understand that? I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching. I'm just telling you what he's teaching me. I'm telling you what he's showing me. He says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't make it profane. Don't profane it. Don't, don't make sure the name of the Lord is on display in the way you're living. Do our life, does our lifestyle, our morals, our behavior bring credit to his name? To claim the name of God with our, with our mouth but contradicted in our actions violates this command. Command number four, uh, verse eight. Does somebody have that? Want to read that? It's just verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What do you think that means? I'm curious. Somebody tell me. Rest? Mm-hmm. Have a day of rest, a day of, refle- a day of relaxation. Dave will say to me, Rhea, you are so tired because you never take a rest. You never stop. You need to stop. And, and I've always looked at this verse that way until, <laughs> until I started to study it. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5, or turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15 And can somebody read that to me, please? Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. Carla, do you have that? Yes. I'm making sure I got 15. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Davey, you have it? You want to read it? Six days. Yep. All right. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Nope. Nope. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the holy day on which... Deuteronomy 5, 15. Remember that you were slaves yep. in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Let's look at that. He says, remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out by a mighty hand 
and by an outstretched arm. He said, therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day, to rest. And it isn't rest the way we always think about it. It says to keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy, to, to make it hallowed, to, to make it honor him. Do, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, I delivered you. I did it all of my own. You didn't do it yourself. I delivered you out of slavery. I, I, I delivered you from your enemy all by myself. I am God all by myself. And, and I did this. And so I want you to rest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you. You can work six days if you want. But on the seventh, I want you to rest. And I want you to remember that it was me who did this. And you see, there's some of you here tonight and you are striving, trying to figure out how to get through a situation, how to fix something that's broken, how to, how to repair something that's so messed up. And can I just tell you, keep the Sabbath. Give you a Sabbath day where you just stop and you remember that God did that all by himself and that you don't have to figure this out. You don't have to manipulate the situation. You, he invites you to a place of rest where you remember he is God all by himself, and he is all-powerful, and with him nothing is impossible, and that he, is, he can do immeasurably more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. Oh, take a rest. Take a rest from the worry and from the anxiety and from the fear, from the controlling. Oh, can I tell you how many people I see that are just trying to control, 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 control because the everything's out of control. He invites us to keep a Sabbath, to remind us he did it all by himself. And if he did it then, he can do it again. He says, therefore, he wants to remind us that we can't work hard enough, we can't be busy enough, we can't provide enough, we can't worry enough for ourselves. We have to take a day to rest and remember. The Sabbath is a reminder to rest, that we were powerless and could do nothing, and he delivered us. And if he did it, then he can do it again in our situations. It signifies our utter dependence and reliance on God. So the next six commandments deal with our relationships with others. And so let's pick it up on um, hmm, verse 12. Verse 12, and let's uh, just read verse 12. Yeah. Somebody have that? Verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. Honor your mother and father. Uh, you, you understand that the mother and the father, they're our first authority figures. The, it is the home where we learn to respect. We learn respect for authority. The family is God's ordained platform to learn respect for authority. And the reason we need to, to respect authority is because we understand that all authority derives from him. He places people in authority over us. And in the home... How we're trained there shapes how we relate to others and authority in our, own, in, in our life and other areas in society. And so he's saying, this is important that you get this from the start, to honor authority. And, and it starts with mom and dad, but I'm telling you, it's spiritual authority. It's, it's Dave being authority over our home, but it's Dave as a pastor being an authority, spiritual authority in the church and honoring that. And there's a great book that John Bevere wrote, Leslie Undercover, is that it? Undercover, and it talks about learning to respect authority. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, so then, commandment number six, thou shalt not, somebody, murder. And, and we think of murder as taking a life, killing, taking a life. 
But I want you to think about it a little bigger in perspective. Jesus, when he's talking about the commandments, you see, this is where people say, oh, the commandments don't apply anymore. Are you kidding me? Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. See, this is why we need to study to show ourselves approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of God. People who say the commandments do not apply any longer, I'm really concerned. I'm concerned. Because let's look at what Jesus, this is in red, this is him teaching this. And he says, you have heard, verse 27, that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. There's the command. He said, but I say to you, Whoever even looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This whole passage is about Jesus saying, there's a command that says, do not do this. And then he says, but I say, he one-ups it. He, he makes it, he says, the command says, don't commit adultery. But I say, you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And so he one-ups it, and, and he does that with the kill here. He, he says in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was of those of old, you shall not murder. But whoever murders will be in danger in the day of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is even angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of, of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. He went opposite again. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Does somebody, can somebody quickly look up the message, uh, Matthew 5, 21 in the message for me? Uh, just Google it and, and read it to me from the message. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 probably in the message. Somebody have it quickly? Karen, do you have it? Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Leah, did you say it? You have it? No. Oh, Carla has it. Somebody have it. Yep. You're familiar with the command of the ancients. Do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself halting to court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words, words kill. kill. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Hey, you say, Rhea, I don't like this. Let's move on to something a little more pleasant. I want you to remember my illustration about my children. I did not give my children instruction that, that was their strength. I, I gave them instruction in the area of weakness and their area of struggle. I don't know about you. Maybe you're far more spiritual than I am, but my mouth can get me in a whole lot of trouble. I mess with me. I'm just telling you. I got some flesh. And my mouth is my weapon sometimes. And, and this is constantly being refined by the Lord. And he understands, Rhea, you need instruction. You need some rules. Not to condemn you, but you need instruction, Rhea, so that you are aware of what my, what my character looks like. And my character does not rip people apart with their mouth. My character doesn't carelessly call somebody an idiot. My, char my character doesn't kill people with, with, their, with its words. My character has that under control. And I've given you the Holy Spirit to live within you so that you can represent me well. And you can display that same character to a lost and dying world. So I don't read that scripture and I'm like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. And Rhea hit me over the head with scripture and I believe in condemned. Grow up. 
I'm telling you, we have got to come to a place where we understand God's word is there to make us look more like him and act more like him and represent him. We have a world that's dying and going to hell. And if they see Christ in us and they say, wow, there is something about them. I want what they have. Francis of Assisi said, preach Christ always when necessary. Use words. My life should preach him. My kindness should preach him. My gentleness should preach him. My my words of affirmation in people's life should preach him. My decision to not do what the world is doing should preach him. And we are called. We're called now as people of God to act like people of God. to, To be my brook. To look like the offspring of that person. We're called to look like his offspring to represent him well. And words kill. I'm telling you, that pierces my heart. Words kill. Commandment number seven, thou shalt not what? Commit adultery. And you heard what I, what I read earlier about Jesus one-upping it. And he was saying, not only do I not want you to, to commit adultery, I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman or a man with lust in your eyes, you are guilty of adultery. I just want you to go down through these commandments in Exodus 20. Flip back to Exodus 20 again. Remember, he's giving us the law because it's his expression of who he is. It's the expression of his character. And now he's saying, you are called as my people to begin to live like me. And here, here's the, the, the pattern for what I look like. So, so why would God say, don't commit adultery? Because God is what? Faithful. And so when I'm committing adultery, I am what? Unfaithful. Because God is a God of covenant. And when I break covenant, I'm a covenant breaker. And I misrepresent him to a lost and dying world. Why would he say, eh, don't steal? Because God is what? A giver, not a taker. Why would he say, don't lie? Because God is what? Truth, not a liar. And so when I do those things, I misrepresent him to a lost and dying world. Do you see it? Do you see? He's the giver of life. He's not the taker of life. So when, when he gives, he, if he, when, when he puts his spirit within me and he says, represent well, Rhea, and I take life by speaking words of death over somebody, I don't represent well. You see, this is not about condemnation. This is about teaching us how to represent well. He didn't give the law because he, he said, oh, right, let's just see how, let's see how powerful they are. Let's see if they want to please me. Work hard, work hard, be miserable. Feel like a failure every day of your life because you can't keep this. Are you kidding me? He gave you the Holy Spirit living within you. You see, the people who preach all grace, and it can't be, it's not works. I agree with them 100%, but the same grace that saved you now lives within you. And that grace that saved you and delivered you now is empowering you to say no to all ungodliness. And so I just need to tap into that. It is still nothing about me and all about him. Because I can't do this. Trust me, ask Dave. I'm not really good at this in my own flesh. It's only when I am submitted to the Spirit. You see, that's why there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
That's my position. When I'm in position, oh, oh, I love soccer. I love it. I love soccer. My, my children all played soccer. Lord, keep me on, on, on task here. But my children all played soccer, and Dave coached them, and, and Dave is, is English. He loves soccer, football. And, and in our family, Manchester United is everything. And my boy's bedroom was decorated, Manchester United. Uh, Dave is, I, we don't have cable Poor pastor, we don't have cable, and he is grieving the other day that he's not going to be able to watch Manchester United this year, and he's trying to finagle a way that he can somehow get Manchester United in our house without paying for cable, and, and so it's a big deal in our house, <laughs> and our children all played soccer whether they wanted to or not, uh, and, and Dave coached them for a long time, and one day Dave came home, and he said, Rhea, I can't coach these girls. He said, they're holding hands, and they're picking daisies, and I, he said, I just can't handle it, and, and, and so he stopped coaching Kendall, and, and we had a wave player that became her coach, and he was the best coach, don't you think, that I think our kids have ever had, and, and because he knew how to handle these girls, and he knew that, that, that soccer was a game of position, and as long as you're in position, you're doing well. But if you get out of position, your opponent has the advantage. And so he was teaching the girls all about position. And so what he would do is he did something no other coach would ever do. Because they were little, he could do this. And the girls would be just having so much fun. And they're social. And so if Ava had the ball over here, everybody would be like, hey, Ava, how are you? And they would all gather around Ava with the ball. And the opponent would still be in position. And so all had to happen was that ball had to get kicked out into the opponent and bam, right in the goal because they were all out of position having a social hour over here. Are you with me? And so th this coach would do something. He would go, Whoop! he'd blow the whistle and he would go pick these little things up with their little legs kicking and he would put them back into position. He'd say, Ava, you stay right here and do not move. Kendall, you are back here by the goal and do not leave this goal for anything. And so-and-so, you are over here. You're a wing and you stay out here on the wing. And he put them back into position. And I'm telling you, that team ended up being, being number one in the league because they understood that soccer was a game of position. And, and when you got out of position, the enemy had the advantage. And can I tell you what? The, the law of God is about putting you back into position. It wasn't about defeating you and making you feel like a loser. It was all understanding where sometimes in my life I can hear God say, oh, Rhea, you're out of position. Get back over here. Because your enemy has the advantage over you. When you're using your mouth to murder, the enemy has the advantage. And I'm just saying, Rhea, get back into position. It's not about condemning. It's about getting you and I back into position. So the enemy doesn't have the advantage in our life anymore. All right, so thou shalt not commit adultery. I just want to park here just for one second. I heard uh, a preacher talk about this a number of years ago, and I was sharing it with somebody this week, and it came back to my mind. And, and they were talking about marriage and, and how, uh, you know, sex, it was, they were talking about sex and how sex is beautiful in the confines of a marriage, but adultery, sex outside of marriage, is dangerous. And, and, and he brought wood, and he began to, to build a fire on the stage. Now, if I had wood and I, I built a fire up here on the stage, would anybody feel uncomfortable? You understand that fire on the confines of this stage is going to be disastrous. 
You see, I love fire. I love my fireplace is, is my Jesus time. I, I flip the fireplace on and I sit in front of it and I warm myself from that fire. And fire in the confines of my fireplace is a beautiful thing. But the same fire that warms me in California, in a dry field, can be disastrous because it doesn't, it's not confined. And so God says, you know what? Sex is a beautiful thing in the confines of marriage. But when you take that beautiful thing that I created and you take it outside the confines that I call confinement, marriage is the confinement, it becomes a deadly disastrous thing that will spread like wildfire and bring disaster everywhere it goes. And that's why he says, don't commit adultery. Not to condemn us, but to save us from what he knows will be disaster. And the bigger picture is that marriage is a picture of covenant. It's a picture of commitment. And when we say, I do, when we say, until death does us part, he means until death does us part. And when we break that, what we do is we teach people that, that words can't be trusted. That words can't be trusted. And we are called to represent. And if we confess him with our mouth, and then we go do something like that. Oh, baby, do we misrepresent. And we mess a whole lot of lives up in the process. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He says it because he knows it will be a struggle, that the struggle for sexual purity is a real thing. And he says, I'm going to, loyalty and promise keeping are important. I take vows seriously. Commandment number eight is thou shalt not what? Steal. And when I steal something, it's a desire to take what does not belong to me. I want what I want, and I'll do whatever I need to do to get it. It's rooted in selfishness. And that is the opposite of representing a God who is a giver, who doesn't take what what doesn't belong to him. And so he says, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not, number nine, what is that one? Lie. False witness. It means to lie. Why is that important? In fact, of all the things that God hates, there's a list of all the things that God hates. Do you know what one of them is? A lying tongue. He hates it. He detests it, a lying tongue, because he's a truth teller. And when we tell lies, we misrepresent him. Do you you see that? And then number 10, thou shalt not covet. When we covet something, it, it means we're not content with what we have, with what God has given us, with our lot in life. Instead, I want what God has given you, and I'm not content, and, and it's that desire that, that is just, it is never satisfied, and God wants us to learn to be content with what he's given us. That's the problem in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eve and, and Adam thought that God was withholding something from them because he, he didn't give it to them. And God wants us to be content with what we have. Thou shalt not covet. Remember, this law was not given to save, but it was given as a pattern of behavior for God's people. So when he says, don't do this, it's because it misrepresents him to a lost and dying world. The law was given because we are his people. And he says, this is what your life will look like if you're my people. Our pattern should be, our life should be patterned after him, after him. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 36. 
verses 26 through 27, and we'll close here. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of, uh, gave you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You will keep my judgments and do them. He's saying, I'm going to give you my spirit to live within you. And they're going to cause you to walk in obedience to my commands. That spirit living within us. He's empowering us to walk according to his word. One last scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. I just, I want you to understand what, what, what God is saying here. In Romans 3, 23, many of you will know this scripture. It says, for all have sinned, every one of us have sinned and what? Fallen short of the what? The glory of the Lord. Every one of us will sin and fall short of the glory of the Lord. So sin is falling short of the glory of the Lord. Do you see that? Now flip over to 1 John 3, 4. And we're going to get some definitions of sin here. So the first definition of sin is falling short of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is what the law reveals, his glory, his ex the expression of who he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says... Whoever commits sin breaks the law. Whoever commits sin breaks the law. Now, this is New Testament, church, not Old Testament. And he says, for all, every one of us sin, and we fall short of the glory of the Lord, the expression of who he is. And then he says, sin, anyone who sins breaks the law. Are you seeing that? So, so he's, he's saying sin is two things. It's falling short of the glory of the, of the Lord and breaking the law. The law is the expression of his glory. It's the expression of who he is. And so when we sin, we fall short of that. We, 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 and every one of us do that. We all fall short of the glory of the Lord. I've just lost my notes. I'm sorry. Um, we all fall short of, of the glory of the Lord. But if you look at that scripture in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I just want to go back to that one more time to close. 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You see, the law was given not to save me. I've been saved by grace. But as the law, which is his glory, we fall short of the glory of the Lord. Are you with me? Sin is breaking the law. All who sin fall short of the glory of the Lord. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying here? That, that, that the law is really this, of his glory. And so if I'm being transformed from glory to glory, and I'm becoming more like him, I'm being transformed into his image, how does that happen? When the spirit living within me enables me to walk out obedience, that law, his word, his will for my life, 
his character. When I, when I begin to, to say yes to what he wants to do in my life, to mold me and make me and look more like him, do you understand that I start to go from glory to glory? I start being transformed in his image, and that will not finish taking place until I stand before him, complete in him. But in the meantime, I'm being transformed from glory to glory. And every time I say yes to what he wants to do in my life, every time I yield to his spirit instead of to the flesh in my life, I start looking more like him. I start displaying his glory to a lost and dying world. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. And so just like I'm going to the doctor tomorrow and I'm going to submit to that surgeon and I'm going to just lay on the table and say, do whatever you need to do, cut away whatever needs to be cut away, repair whatever needs to be repaired because I trust you. You need a source bigger than me to fix this thing and you take whatever images you need to take I submit to your examination and you examine me and you look deep within me and you find the cause of what is handicapping me praise the Lord I feel the anointing of the Lord right now I'm telling you I feel the anointing of the Lord in this place and I'm telling you we need to submit before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords the great physician the bomb and Gilead Jehovah Rapha the Lord our healer he wants to make us whole and we do that when we submit before his the his, his word. And we say, Lord, examine me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And then you let him put his, his surgeon finger on that thing and bring healing and wholeness in it. And you submit to him just like I'm going to submit to that surgeon tomorrow. And I'm going to say, do whatever you need to do to fix this handicap. This is not about condemnation. Please hear me. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You can leave here broken. Rock on with your bad self. You'll be going to heaven. But you see, maybe I'm just getting old enough. Maybe I'm just sick enough of where sin takes me. I just don't want to be handicapped anymore. I got tired of this right here. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the way it's limiting me. And when you get tired enough, Falling short. We're going to always fall short till the day we die. But the Bible says to aim for perfection. I'm aiming. My aim, I love to go to the shooting range. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I just love it. I, I love it. it I'm, I'm competitive and, and I love to beat Dave. <laughs> and when we go to the shooting range, I don't aim over here at somebody else's target. I aim perfectly at the target, uh, that, the circle, the bullseye. I don't, I'm not aiming to shoot the ceiling. I have the bullseye in my sights. And Dave will tell you, I don't hit it very often. But I aim. <laughs> and every time I aim, I'm getting better and better and better at it. And that's me. What does our aim look like when the power of the Holy Spirit is in us making aim for us? Empowering us to hit the target. We can't fail. We can't fail. He puts his Holy Spirit within us, empowering us to go from glory to glory, looking more like him, acting more like him. I hope that you're leaving encouraged. Don't you dare leave here saying, 
man, I feel condemned. I feel like a terrible person. I feel like a failure as a Christian. Can I tell you how much you're loved by God? Can I tell you that you're safe to mess up? My grandbaby that's coming, that baby is going to be carried at first, and then we're going to put it down on the ground. It's going to learn to crawl. Eventually, it's going to start walking. And when Mason Ryder starts walking and he falls because he's not, his legs aren't sturdy, I am not going to say, Mason Ryder, I can't believe you fell. Will you ever learn to walk? I will never do that. I'll be like, yes, Mason, you took two steps. I'm so proud of you. That's the kind of God we have. He doesn't say, leave here condemned because you are such an awful person. Just take a step. And will you fall? Count on it. Pretty sure. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up every single time. And he takes another step in the right direction. Equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, Father... Thank you for every man and woman in this house. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's powerful, that it's active, that it doesn't ever return void in our life. And I pray, Father, that the word that's been deposited in this place would reap a harvest, not 30, not 60. I pray for a hundredfold harvest in the lives of these people. Lord, we want to represent you well. Lord, there's the time, I just, I just see it, Lord. Life is but a vapor. Time is short, Lord God. I, I, I want to preach Christ always and when necessary, use my words. I want my life to preach, Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just empower us this week to say no to ungodliness, to look a little bit more like you, to walk a little bit more like you. Lord, I thank you that we are loved by you. That love is the guiding and the directing force in our life. And Father, that gives us freedom, freedom to step out and freedom to fall and freedom to mess up and freedom to do well. And so, Father, I pray that as we aim this week, it wouldn't be about hitting the target, Lord, it'd just be about aiming for it. Lord, you gave us your law to strengthen us in our struggle. So, Lord, I pray for people who struggle right now in making you first in their life. People who struggle making you the priority. I pray for those, Lord God, who have made other gods out of things in their life. People in their lives are, are God before you. They put more value, more affection on those, those other gods, Lord, than they've done on you. That's their struggle. And Lord, I pray that you'd meet them in that place of struggle tonight, Lord God. And that you would prove to them you don't have a rival. You don't rival with anyone or anything. You are so much greater. Lord, prove that to them. Lord, I pray for those who are having trouble resting. Lord, who, who've forgotten that you brought us out, that you are our protector, you're our advocate, you're the one who meets our needs. And Lord God, they're having trouble resting. I pray, Lord God, for that Sabbath rest, that place of rest that you take them, Lord God, where they cease striving, they cease trying to do it on their own, and they just rest in your ability, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who, who are having a hard time murdering whose mouth Lord God 
have drained others of lives, of life, Lord, whose words have been used to kill, to destroy, to tear people down. Lord, you say that bitter water and sweet can't flow from the same spring. Lord, I pray that just like the Israelites threw a piece of wood in the bitter water to make it sweet, your cross, Lord, symbolic of your cross, I pray that those people would visit your cross, that I would visit your cross, Lord God, and I would realize that that empowerment that came from what you did on the cross of Calvary will empower me, Lord God, to speak life instead of death. Keep a lock over our lips, Lord God. Lord, I pray for those who struggle with lying. Who discounted and say, it doesn't really matter. It was just a little white lie. Lord, I pray that tonight, Father, that they would hear that command. Lord, that they would know that you are truth. And as we represent you, we can't afford, Lord, to go to that place anymore. That we have to make a commitment, Lord God, through the power of your Holy Spirit living within us. That we're going to say, Lord, I want you to clean up my mouth. I don't want any lies to come out of my lips, Lord God. I want to represent you well. Lord, for those who struggle with stealing, and I don't mean a, a literal stealing from a store necessarily, who steal a glance at a woman who's not theirs. who steal the applause and the approval of others to fill a need in their heart, who steal a reputation of somebody else to make them feel better. Oh, Lord God, I pray that they would know, Lord, that you want to meet all of their needs according to your riches and glory, that you are more than enough for them, that they don't have to take what doesn't belong to them, Lord, because you want to lavish, you want to lavish in their life everything that they need. Lord, for those who have been in the throes of adultery or who have lived in the pain of somebody being adulterous in their life, Lord, I pray you'd meet them in that place tonight, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you lift off condemnation and shame. And Lord God, let today be the day where they begin to commit afresh and anew to be a covenant-keeping person, a promise keeper, a vow defender. Lift off shame and disgrace, Lord God, and help them to begin again today. Lord, for those who have made idols. Maybe had to watch idols in their life be destroyed and brought down because you want supremacy, Lord. I pray for deeper revelation of who you are and of the depth of your love, Lord God, and that nothing can rival you. Nothing can compete with you. Lord, you want us to find everything we need in you. 
Father, I thank you that you are God all by yourself, that you delivered us from the bondage of sin, from the grip of our enemy, from the cruel taskmasters of our life. You delivered us all by yourself. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it, Lord God. It was an act of your grace, and we praise you for that, Lord. We praise you for that. And I thank you, Father, that you have not left us as orphans, that you have given your Holy Spirit as a deposit, Lord God, a deposit within us, equipping us, empowering us to walk out the life that you've called us to walk out. Help us, Lord, this week to represent well to the lost and dying world around us. We love you, Lord, and we give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Get us back into position, Lord, I pray.